0: Log Talk Radio.
1: My name is Sister Pamela Muhammad and I would like to welcome you to A Time for Justice. Thank you so much for turning in to the Elevated Places Network presents A Time for Justice. On this show, we like to discuss legal and current events in a roundtable discussion with outstanding legal minds. We discuss this country's centuries-long failure to apply, uphold, and enforce the laws and the overall failures of the legal system to give justice and the negative impact these failures have had on our black family, their black families, black people, and ultimately we want fair dealing. We want justice under the law. But all too often, this is not the actions that we see. Our guest tonight will not make those excuses for racist conduct often seen, which are really distractions from the truth, which is the path to justice and equal protection under the law. So let's talk about just, fair, and equitable solutions, which are in the best interest of the people. let remove the distraction. So tonight's topic is how the legal system targets youth and families into the prison pipeline. And pretty much under this topic, we're going to talk about Fourth Amendment violations. And these violations are violations of our rights to privacy our rights to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. You know, this is what we're talking about when we talk about rights to remain silent. Um, Now, that's the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, but still, how do we even get into exercising our rights to remain silent unless we're being targeted? We're being surveilled. These investigatory stops where there's no probable cause, These surveillance of mothers in playgrounds, in schools, their children are being surveilled. And again, black parents are being criminalized, and we're seeing the outcome with our children. So I'm very, 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 very excited tonight because we have a wonderful show set up for you all tonight. We have some wonderful guest panelists. And right now, I think I'm going to bring on those panelists so we can start this wonderful conversation. Again, my name is Sister Pamela Muhammad, and I'm an attorney. I'm an attorney in Houston, Texas, as well as Ferguson, Missouri, St. Louis. As we know, I've been practicing law for 30 years, over 30 years. And really, this particular topic is near and dear to my heart because I've seen all too often our families targeted, treated unfairly, and the breakup of the family, it looks a lot like the slavery system where black families were not valued. And the criminal justice system is definitely a culprit, the child welfare system and others. But, again, as I bring up our panelists, I also want to talk about we are going to talk about solutions, these panelists are not only attorneys, but they are attorneys that take their job so seriously that they work on both sides of the system. That's right. They work inside the system to protect and defend, and then they go out into the communities, and we call that prevention. Because prevention, like the Honorable Minister Louis Khan has taught to us, who are in the nation, that we must make our own neighborhoods a decent and safe place to live, and this is what they do. So I would like to first introduce Kareem. She is an attorney here in Houston, Texas. She's been a member of the state bar, the Texas bar, since April of 2002. She graduated in undergrad from Texas A&M. And she earned her Juris Doctorate degree from Thurgood Marshall School of Law in 2001. This sister is very busy. She graduated from law school and actually started in politics and social activism, working for uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. She actually opened her own law office in 2004. Sister Sadia is a community activist. She's a freedom fighter, and her message of social justice and female empowerment is really well known throughout this city and this country. Uh, Sister Sadia grew up in Houston, Texas. She's also, uh, since joining the Nation of Islam, she is a person that works in non-for-profits, working with Action CDC as board president, and she also has an organization called Queendom Come, and she says she was inspired by the Honorable Minister Louis speech in 2015, teaching us to save our girls. She's an author, uh, and she is a registered member, but, you know, we as sisters, we like to make sure everyone understands that she is a devoted wife to Brother Kasala Kareem and the proud mother of seven, four girls, and three boys. So I would like to uh, welcome Sister Saidia, open up her mic, and uh, want to greet Sister Saidia. Sister Saidia?
0: Yes, ma'am. As-salamu Sister Attorney Pamela. Thank you so much for having me on this show. It's an honor and it's a privilege um, just to be in the ranks with you fighting for freedom, justice, and equality.
1: All praises are due to Allah, Sister idea. Thank you so much for coming on our show, A Time for Justice. And next, I would like to introduce our Sister Attorney, Sister Kiana x mann Sister Kiana Manns is an attorney, and she is a child welfare law specialist, mediator, and she's a respected family law practitioner. She um, cares about her clients in the community, and I can attest to that. She is most proud to be the mother of five beautiful girls, beautiful daughters, She actually has inspired and she continues to advocate for families in our juvenile justice system or in the judicial system. She attended California State University. She actually attended and earned a Juris Doctorate degree from the Whittier Law School in 2010. And she is also a mediator, as I think I said. But I wanted to point out that Sister Kiana, she has a law office in the Sunnyside area, which she, uh, you know, has really kind of promoted and dedicated that office to dispute resolution and atonement. So it is the Man's Law Office uh, Dispute Resolution Center. She is a former special education advocate. She was actually named as voted as a top lawyer in 2016 and received a recognition of excellence by lawyers' distinction in 2018. She is also, as I said, she, these women work in the community, so she has an organization that she founded along with others, and that organization is called Queendom Come and it's established for the empowerment of women and girls. So making sure that Sister Kiana's mic is open. Sister Kiana, let me make sure your mic is open. As-salamu alaykum. Yes. Wow, as salam Sister Kiana. Thank you so Good much man. for having
2: me on. And, you know, uh, this is definitely uh Blessing, uh, You are my mentor, and I'm just so happy to be able to be here and join this discussion with you.
1: Oh, praises are due to a lot. Thank you so much, Sister Kiana. I am excited, too. This is very exciting because, as we all on this line can attest to, this topic is so near and dear to our hearts. And so without further ado, let me bring on the brother. Our brother attorney tonight is Brother Jacques Mohammed. And brother Jock is a son of parents who are of Haitian descent. He is married to Sister Christella, and they've been married for over 23 years, raising two children, Asia and Jock the third. Brother Jock actually is a Morehouse College graduate. He's undergraduate from Morehouse, and he earned uh, a law degree from cuny school of law brother jock he's actually this brother is just so accomplished and powerful as well he talks about the things he did in law school he started his public service early because he dealt with constitutional rights in mississippi and He, um, criminal law, he worked in the New York City Department of Correction. He actually did habeas habeas filings and legal research for, these are for nonprofit type for for indigent, for this is what this brother spent his time doing. He also worked on the nation's legal team, actually, and um, Brother Jock, He joined an in-house defense firm, so he served as a supervising attorney in a litigation department, and he has recently opened his own boutique law firm along with other attorneys, and that firm is called LMV Law Group, and they specialize in election law practice. Isn't that wonderful? So, notwithstanding, even uh, in light of all his professional demands, Brother Jock is a—he—he he does so much community work. This—this this one thing that really stands out to me about him from afar, because I—I I see his accomplishment. So, in this Southeast Queens community, Brother Jock is a. President of the Childhood Sports Organization, the Rosedale Jets Football, and he's done this over the span of 20 years, being head coach. Um, he also is a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated. I have to mention that. So <laughs> I want to bring on Brother Jock and open up his mic as well. Brother Jock.
3: Wow, yes,
1: salam, Lake. Yes, sir.
3: Thank you so very much for an invitation to this wonderful platform. And I look forward to the discussion with the fellow um, panelists as well.
1: Oh, yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your taking your time to come on A Time for Justice as we talk about the topic of how the legal system targets youth and families into prison pipelines. So I want to start, I want to open up the conversation uh, right away. And really, we all have heard and we kind of think we know what this prison pipeline concept is because we hear it so much. But I wanted to give the panelists an opportunity to give us weigh in on what is it? What, what are you, what did, what's your definition or, or what's your description of what we see as the pipeline to the prisons? And, and with that, we want to talk about some of the factors that feed it and make it so successful. So, Sister Cidey, I'm going to start with you.
0: Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Sister Pam.
1: So yes, I've, I've been practicing criminal law for
0: almost 20 years, 20 years okay. next year. And a large part of my practice is uh, juvenile criminal justice. Yes. And I happened to, I guess, it wasn't something that I was intentionally trying to get involved in. I was do, dealing with the adults. What I was finding was that a lot of the juvenile cases that I was receiving, um, I was the second attorney, the first attorney being a court appointed And most of the children um, being in the juvenile um, detention center and they had been there for at minimum an average of nine months. That's like going to jail, being away from your family for nine months, waiting on your court date. And now these children can range from um, the ages of 12 to 16. 17, they're considered an adult here in Harris County. And what I found out is that the biggest aspect, the biggest denominator that I was dealing with with the children was their mental health and the environment, lack of resources, and lack of education. And so if we can trace back the prison to pipeline, we, uh, you know, you go to the school systems, you go, really it's to the womb. If if we, we are honest with ourselves, starting with the womb. And so I know as a criminal defense attorney that the brain is not really fully developed until the age of 24. And when you don't have a good support system, then the mental deficiencies that you have in your brain at such a young age is going to cause you to do some things that are other than yourself and other than what society will accept. And just to see the and I know Sister Kiana she she's down in the, um, the court system with the children as well, um, dealing with CPS and just witnessing just some of the harrowing experiences that these children have experienced. They. You know, we look at them as the perpetrators. Society looks at them as the perpetrators, but in reality, they are the victims. Because how Mm. can they consent to some of the things that are happening to them, or they're experiencing, or what their family experiencing, or lack of uh, having a you know a good uh, parenthood with them? You know, um, not a lot of them is undiagnosed mental illness. So. If I have to look at it, and we can talk about white supremacy and, and systematic racism because really it's at the root of it as well. We're dealing with post-traumatic um, slavery disorder. We're dealing with so many different factors that have caused um, our children to suffer and be a part of the criminal justice system. But let me say this. I do believe that it, is, it was planned, it is planned, and it is a, a coordinated um, system. I remember in Harris County there was a judge and he would take these children and he would immediately, not really giving them any real justice or any help or rehabilitation and send them to the detention center or TYC, which is in essence jail for the prison for the children. And so that's just the beginning of feeding the prison prison pipeline or industrial uh complex, prison industrial complex, uh, you know, another form of slavery. So it's all mm. a coordinated system. Um, and, you know, we've been taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, we know the ways of the enemy, and the thing is, if I have to talk about a solution for us, and we could talk about all the problems, because they're, of course they're all there, but it's really about our unity and being able to talk, confront what we're dealing with, and then snatching our children and our families away from the mouth of the enemy, um, and that means us creating for ourselves. So I don't want to keep going on and on because I know Sister um, Kiana and Brother Jack have a lot to talk about it, but from my experience dealing with the criminal justice system in our juvenile, it's a coordinated effort starting from the womb.
1: Yes, ma'am, that's beautiful. And and what you said I thought was interesting uh, amongst everything else you said, but it's important that our listeners know that, of course, at the age of 17, young people are considered adults. But many times, and I think that's why Sister idea's position is so unique because 24, 21, 20-year-olds 20 are oftentimes very immature, but of course the criminal justice system treats them as adults. So we'll come back and talk about that. I'm gonna go, as you said, let's let's talk to Sister Kiana because I know Sister Kiana does a lot of work in the child welfare side of this pipeline to the prison. And, you know, I'm just a real big advocate for making our people know about the surveillance factors uh, that make up this pipeline, what do they call it, the womb to the pipeline, prison when it comes to child welfare, Sister Kiana. So if you could share with us, uh, you know, what your perspective is on this pipeline, prison pipeline.
2: Yes, ma'am. As, as far
1: okay. as, can you all hear me? Yes, ma'am, we definitely can.
2: Okay. As far as a pipeline, it's pretty much visually um, a method to carry something from one place to another. Um, and so I believe that the the policies and practices of this system, so to speak, just carries the children from the foster system to the juvenile justice system and then to the larger adult criminal system by the policies and practices that are um, put in place for the children. I initially started off doing um, criminal law with adults, and I hated it um, because it just seemed like all you could do is really plead people out because they had prior history. Um, And a Mm. lot of um, the cases were just so disturbing to me that I I really felt not felt like I was not making a difference. Um and so I transitioned over to um doing juvenile cases and still was kind of met with the same <laughs> problem. So I was like this is just an overall problem. Um there there was supposed to be a focus um in the area of juvenile law of rehabilitation. That's the main focus. That's the ideology of helping um, our youth when they have gone astray um, from status offenses or criminal offenses. Um, That's the overarching idea um, supposedly in that system. And so I found myself having to reorientate people to that ideology, to that mindset, um, and really fight for the children to not become a part of the system from the beginning. Um, and so I think the method uh, that really um, put the children in the system is really the lack of proper representation. Um, mm-hmm. When uh, you have children coming into court with minor offenses, with things that we never would even imagine going to court about like saying, telling somebody, well, I'm going to hit your mom or I'm going to hit your brother. You know, how we start uh, going back and forth with each other as as youth. And then you have to have a child come to you with a terroristic threat at this point um, is a felony. Uh, And so it was just, yes, it it just was something where I had to begin to really um, learn to advocate and educate Um, I became um, involved in the juvenile board um, in um, Houston uh, to make sure that we had um, CLEs and really um, present information about how to properly represent and defend uh, youth. And then as far as the foster care system, it's, again, coming in from the beginning, right at the gate in the investigation stage where you have – these caseworkers, these investigators, demanding to be, in, you know, let into people's homes without a search warrant. Yes. Um, and right. so I think it starts with the educational portion um, at the beginning, not only to those in the field, but to our people in the community as well.
1: Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You're, you're. That's beautiful because, as you're saying. Um, There are times when a person could be charged with what is, in CPS, it's called a case of neglect. Um, And this person could be charged with neglect. I I saw one, she was a self-employed hairdresser, and they called, the school called, her child's school called her to talk to her about the child's some issues. And she said within 30 minutes, they called her like three times. She didn't answer. She probably was put on a perm or something, right? But within that period of time, the next thing she knows, she's being investigated for mm-hmm. um, neglect because she didn't answer the phone. Right. So, the, you know, these are the types of targeting and surveillance that's going on in the black community. I wanted to bring Brother Jack into this conversation because I know his work is a bit different in the 9 to 5 lawyer, you know, most of us y'all you know, think of us as lawyers with our, you know, our suits and our, you know, and our, you know, our clothes are very conservative and that is what we do. Um, but some of us like I say this brother works in the streets hand to hand with the youth and with the knowledge of his law, you know, his practice. I'm sure, Brother Jack, you can talk to us about what you see in this
3: pipeline. Uh, again, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. In thank fact, you. In fact, my first uh, job out of law school was working with the Department of Correction, where mm. I worked for a library with um, detainees and helping with legal writing, legal methods, and legal theory. And I came, you know, uh up close and personal with a lot of the detainees, many of whom were adolescents. And it was just actually heartbreaking for me to work with young, gifted, very talented young men who were between the ages of 16 and 18 who were um, incarcerated or detained at the time because Rikers Island, as you may or may not know, in New York City, it's the island that's off of the the Bronx, and in order to get to Rikers Island, you have to take this long bridge, uh, uh, you know, across the bridge, and uh, on the other side, it's just a horrific reality. And just to watch busloads every single day, literally busloads of young men being transported from eight neighborhoods in New York City to the Rikers Island, and then from there, awaiting transport to uh, all the prisons in upstate New York, and these eight neighborhoods consist of the South Bronx, South Jamaica Queens, Brownsville in Brooklyn, Bet- Betsy in Brooklyn, some of the uh, neighborhoods in um, Staten Island, but eight neighborhoods essentially feed the prison or the school-to-prison pipeline, or as Sister Sadia mentioned, the womb-to-prison pipeline. Eight neighborhoods
4: mm-hmm.
3: serve as a farm system or the feeding ground for the prison industrial complex in New York. And out of those eight, well, those eight neighborhoods are comprised of black and Latino brothers and sisters. And uh, for me, that experience actually somewhat shaped my direction in the legal field. I kind of knew after that experience that I didn't necessarily want to do criminal defense law, especially as it pertained to young people. However, I wanted a way to intervene um, prior to young people coming in contact with the the whole prison industrial complex. And with that, uh, I I started a youth football organization out here in, in Queens, and it morphed into a youth development organization. And primarily because of 1995 when the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan asked the brothers to take a pledge. And uh, part of that pledge was to go back into our communities and make them safe and decent places and to get active within our community. And since then, I've been engaged with our young people, um, ensuring that they avert, you know, um, entering that pipeline, uh, although it's it's been an extreme challenge, however. Mm, yes, sir. That is awesome.
1: Praise be to Allah. And, and, you know, as we're talking he, here as attorneys, I think it's so important because, yes, we do want to talk about solutions, but we also, as Sister Kiana, I believe, and Sister Saidiya both said, you know, the lack of lawyers and the lack of knowledge about how the legal system works has oftentimes been a major factor in, you know, pushing our our children and our families into these prison pipelines. So I think it's kind of important that we talk about it because some, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that we're seeing in the headline news now this surge in violence is being reported. And, you know, and what that often does is make people have hardened hearts toward what they call the perpetrators of the violence. And the youth, you know, the finger is once again being pointed at youth. And we saw this, the war on drugs. We saw, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic. We saw where, you know, our youth were labeled as super predators. And once again, the harsh consequences were thrown at them. And so I think that as Brother Ishmael talked about it on Sunday, we do have to look into the situations involving children of color and and black children, um, and and look at how they are victims of the reality. This is what he said, the reality and the circumstances of our youth and young people. And so, you know, wanted to kind of put that out there because, as I think Sister Sadia talked about, consent. uh, Sister Kiana talked about during CPS situations, these police who surveil, they call themselves caseworkers, but many times they are acting in the role of uh, children, children snatching police, that's what I call them. You know, they show up at your door, and they don't want to uh, abide by any constitutional laws. They believe that they should be able to get in. And like Sister Sadia mentioned about the issue of consent, and how many times are people just freely, especially young people with impulsivity, just, you know, opening up their cars and their doors, and, and then we know they're even being drugged drug, drug out and, and beat up. I mean, this this is in the wake of a George Floyd um, lifestyle is what our youth are dealing with in these jungles. So wanted to talk about that. I actually want to also say, That this show is a blog talk radio show, a time for justice, and it's a call-in show. And please, any of the listeners who would like to ask a question to any of our wonderful attorneys, the number is 563-999-3065. And if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, simply press the one button, and you will be in the host queue. And so going back to our attorneys, so I wanted to talk now about parenting styles. What are fathers and mothers doing that may contribute to the youth being vulnerable? Um, And and so because we see it sometimes, one of the things I see sometimes is you know, um, this, you know, go turn yourself in, you know, or I'll call. There was a mother who was having some problems with her, her child, and she called a center for which she thought should have been able to help potentially, gave them all the incriminated information on what he's doing, and then the next thing you know, there's a case or there's a, um investigator What are we seeing parents do that are making their families more vulnerable? Anyone who wants to, um, you know, say anything or make a comment, please do. Yes,
0: ma'am. This is this idea. So, you know, as a mother of seven, when you read my bio, you know, I don't really smile at the other stuff. But when you started talking about me being married, a wife, and a mother of seven, I literally sat here and was beaming because that, was, that is, I consider, my most important mission and purpose on this planet um, because these children are not mine. And so every time I go out there into the world, I always think about my children or somebody else's children. And, and what we as black people, brown people, have, have lost, and, and again, this is, this is not on accident, is we have lost our sense of community our sense of neighborhood, our sense of family. You know, at once it used to be where everybody um, watched our children. You know, it wasn't just the biological family um, or the nuclear family. It was everyone in the community. So if, you know, if um, your daughter messed up, then it would be the auntie down the street who would make sure that she was checked, and then she would tell you what happened. And so the biggest thing is that our communities are just so broken and the parents are so isolated and they don't have the resources or they're not equipped or have the support system. That's why the, the Children Protective Services can come, up, come in and swoop the children up as opposed to, say, you know, with the situation with the, the, the sister with the salon, um, somebody say, I know that child. That's a good child. Therefore, let me handle that on behalf of the parent, as opposed to calling some kind of law enforcement or governmental agency. And so right now, parents, they're frustrated. They don't have the resources. They don't have the education, the knowledge um, to be able to take care of their children. That whole crack epidemic, that drug epidemic, the war on drugs, it really destroyed a fam the family and the black community. And now we have our mothers and fathers who, you know, who dealt from the ravages of that and are unable to really parent. Um, they couldn't be parented, therefore they can't parent their own children. So we've got to get back to, to just being able to be united as a community and help,
1: you know, the village help raise the child. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, because um, I want to say, as we know in law there is a standard, is a concept called the best interest of the child. And I read in an article many times the system's idea of what is in the best interest of black children is to remove their parents and their connection from the community and to be raised and controlled by white people and this system. So we've got to make sure, as this idea is saying, our village, our village, our families, our aunties, we need to be the service providers because that goes into, um, and I want to see if anyone else wants to um, weigh in on that question. Um, anyone else want to weigh in the question regarding it, the vulnerabilities? Uh, you, yes, ma'am. I, I think, the,
2: again, I think it's the the lack of um, education and the lack of resources. I also believe that the village approach um, was very um was a very strong approach in combating um, some of the isolated issues that we have like as an individual and in our families. Um, And so we were able to have more protection um, for our children because if there was something that you were lacking in your household, then another household in the community may have been able to step up uh, in that regard. So I think definitely getting into this white supremacist, independent mind um, has uh, really left our children out there to be attacked and open um, for um, these types of intrusions uh, into our lives and into our families. Mm -hmm. And I also um, wanted to say that our image and our um, mindset that we take to our children as well, Um, affect them. I think we put a lot of adultification um, on our children um, as far as their abilities, their capabilities, um, when they are in front of the juvenile justice system and when they are not. I think that uh, other children of other nationalities get the um, time to be a child. I don't think that we allow our children to benefit from the law um, in terms of being a minor, um, that we bring that attitude in um, to the system, um, like they should know or they should have known better or they should do this and the, they should have these harsh penalties. And we agree with the system sometimes in um, the retribution that we see happening to our children. So I think we have to go back and really... Um, put on the mindset of the village uh, approach into raising our children and also to give them the benefit of being children um, and having protection of adults, you know, um, and, and, and that they don't have, um, all of the knowledge. They don't fully understand consequences, um, and give them the, 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 I guess, uh, the time to grow and to make mistakes and not condemn uh, them or punish them in such a severe way um, when we see that they have, you know, made a mistake.
3: And if I can add to that, Sister Pamela. Yeah, go right ahead. I, I think also it's also important to really recognize the enemy and, for many of us, we're in denial. We we think that the situation that we find our families in, mm-hmm. our, our youth, is happenstance. And mm-hmm. don't really want to own up to the fact that this is intentional. You know, when you're right. having children growing up in a food desert and the only thing they drink is quarter water all day and, and, uh, and, And Twinkies, they're eating Twinkies all day long, and then they're going to a school where teachers don't care about Mm -hmm. them. Uh, They're going to a school where the curriculum uh, reinforces uh, inferiority complex. Uh, We can't really expect anything different from what we're seeing. And I think it's really important that we have to understand that we, we are faced with a real, not made up, but a real enemy. And we're in a system, but the system was designed by a man and the The system doesn't operate on um without a maker with, without a technician and that technician is working day and night to ensure that the conditions will produce exactly what we see in in our communities where we we have young men, young women who uh, don't have various outlets as they're developing as young people where they can express themselves artistically, where they can express themselves in, in, in different forms, and it tend to take on antisocial behavior. But if we start looking at the reality of where they're growing up, how they're growing up, and, and um, the fact that we need to intervene, uh, I think we'll start seeing a change. And I, I know that's one of the things, you know, uh, we, we've done with our youth uh, sports organization. Um, we got some like-minded brothers that came together and said, you know what, we just can't, we don't have the luxury of just being a football coach, throwing a football around and, and you know, writing X's and O's. We have to find a way to service the whole child. And, um, and we took that approach because we understood that just being a football coach, was not going to help benefit the whole child, and I think that's the approach we need to take in various facets of service that we provide.
1: Yes, sir. That you're you're right. I think the issue of trust. You know, we are putting trust in people that we should not put trust in. These lawyers that people are hiring. Our people are hiring these lawyers who they are not worthy of representing your children or your family. They're not doing the job because they don't love the community. So we need to stop being, you know, what I think is very naive. I totally agree with you, Brother um, Jack, because you got stats like 88% of youth in adult jails in America are not white. You know, while young people ages 18 to 24 make up 10% of the population or so, you know, 21% of, of people in adult prison, uh, we make up that. With black men in the age group, seven to nine times more likely to end up in prison um, than their white peers. And so at some point we have to realize that this is intentional. That took me <laughs> That took me a while to understand that this is not a mistake. This is not – that the system is, is not operating as, as what they intend to do. So I, I totally think you all's uh, points on that were just very, very much on point. Um, and, and some of the things they don't know, like don't say any, don't sign anything. That's one of um, the most important issues that we see in the criminal justice system where we're coming into these cases and conversations that shouldn't be had have already been had confessions statements all types of admissions and sometimes misrepresentations are being made without the right to a lawyer and this is so important i think for us to tell our community and our parents you know you do have the right to remain silent and you 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 need to use that right am am i am i correct i mean you, sister, yeah, yes, ma'am, yeah, 'cause as for you sister idea, yeah, I know you as a you you do a lot of criminal law as well as other law, but what would you think is the most important thing a person should know you know from a criminal um justice standpoint when they're out here on these streets, so, I used to be
0: a visiting professor at Texas Southern University teaching um undergrad but teaching law related classes and every the first day of every class all my classes the, first, the number one thing i said to all my students predominantly african-american never 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 confess never take a test if you don't learn mm. nothing from my class never confess never take a test because at, at the point where you confess or you take a test then whatever right you may have to defend against they're gone and so we can, you know, at any point in time, you know, and I tell my client whether innocent or guilty, it gives us an opportunity to defend your rights, but you don't want to give them away ignorantly,
2: right? So that's, that's what I
0: would right. say, Yeah, that's
2: very And if I if, I, if I could jump in for um, the juveniles that I, I I I you know had to tell them, don't answer questions, don't and I, don't do this, and when somebody asks you, don't say. I have to just say, don't talk. Don't talk <laughs> to anybody because cause they, you know, get around war. Well, I didn't say that I did this. I, I didn't do, I was just saying this. I mean, I I didn't do anything wrong, you know, because they're children. They, they right. don't know. Um, and they don't know that they are dealing with an enemy, first of all. And so when they get into the system and you have these wicked deceivers, you know, <laughs> approaching them, It's just like we're having a casual conversation, um, and then something very innocent that they say can be misrepresented uh, and misconstrued. um, And even, you know, taken as a confession or um, Mm -hmm. admitting something, which it had nothing to do with, you know, the actual crime or alleged crime that they were accused of committing. So I just had to start telling my clients, don't talk. This, right. And they would call me and be like, "Well, somebody came up here. Am I? Can I talk to her? No, don't talk to nobody. Yeah. Well, can I talk to them?" Right. And I had to say to parents, "No, you only talk to your parents when I'm there," because the parents would then be a way for them to get the information. Because again, right. the parents are, "Well, Johnny, he just he just said this, and um, he was there at six, and they, you know, and they had information all wrong." thinking that they're helping, but they're not. Um, and so I had, to, I had to take that approach and um, trying to help my little ones because it's just very difficult uh, because they are young um, and most of them innocent, I can say, um, in terms of intentionally, you know, doing things. I'm not going to say we don't have children that do that. But for most of the time, I just can say from my experience, we don't have terrible children. We have children who have been misguided, misled or who have done something silly or a mistake, but in terms of intentionally doing things, um I have to say the mens rea was not there for the crime. Um and so I had to just tell them to be quiet <laughs> and not to talk. Right. Um so they could actually um be able to have an opportunity to adequately defend themselves.
3: And Sister Pamela, may I add... um, I'd have the legal background. We're we're also, uh, again, dealing with a diabolical system. Um, Here in um, New York City, uh, a few years ago, we had a campaign against stop and frisk. Um, Well, lately they... They're they're still doing it. They just changed the name. You know, now it's Stop, Question, and Frisk or some other name that they want to come up with to mask their unlawful stops. And uh, a group of attorneys, some from the mosque and others just from the criminal defense bar, we started going into the housing developments and providing free Know Your Rights seminars to some of the young people. And it was just astonishing that some young people would tell you, you know, um, Mr. Muhammad, uh, I get, you know, shook down at least two to three times a week. In fact, when the cops come, I just put my hands up and I tell them I don't have anything. They go through my pockets. They realize I don't have anything, and then they go about their business. But this happens all the time. So the amount of um, violations that occur is just um, mind-boggling. And I I believe as, uh, you know, attorneys and those who are trained, In the law, in our communities, we have uh, an added obligation to go beyond, um, you know, what we do on a day-to-day basis to ensure that we provide our young people with the tools that they need to to survive some of these um, police encounters, especially when when it happens so often. And as uh, Sister Kiana mentioned, I think it's really important to equip them with the tools of, you know, just shut up. Keep your mouth quiet. That's right. You know, keep your mouth shut. And uh, I know in some of the courses that we've given, some of the workshops, we, we did a, a, a lot of role play. And um, and with that, I think it really helps some of the young people see the visual of how easy it is to open your mouth and, and get in trouble. Yeah. Brother John.
1: Yeah. And um, – I can't hear him. Um, are you all still – I can still hear you all, um, everybody?
0: Yes, ma'am. Yes, okay, ma'am. and
1: so, and so while he's – when he comes back, but I wanted to comment on what Sister Kiana said about mens rea, because that's a term in law that kind of means guilty mind, which really when we look at it as lawyers, they need to um, – sometimes people feel like, well, I didn't do anything. And if I just explain Uh, that away, then I can give them that explanation. But sometimes you may not know what is the crime, what is the point, and your willingness to participate and try to be helpful, that doesn't help you most times. Sometimes that just gives you in deeper and deeper hot water. So the point is Don't say anything. Do not talk police officers beyond your name. And also, as parents, do not give these people permission to talk to your children. No, they cannot talk to your children. They're already going up in these schools interviewing them at will. Uh, So, you know, it's it's a lot that we're being faced with and targeted. I'm going to go ahead and open up the mic because we do have a couple of callers that are holding right now. Let's
4: see, Brother Deshaun. Brother Deshaun. Uh yes. As-salamu
1: yes, sir. Why like a salam, Brother Deshaun? How are you, sir?
4: Um, I'm wonderful, sister. It your your show is like a breath of fresh air. I have these conversations on a daily basis down here in down here in Tennessee. All
1: and so you to
4: I, I I'm I'm, I'm so grateful to hear all these other legal minds who deal with the exact same thing. But yes. oftentimes what I find if we're talking about the school to prison pipeline is we cannot leave out the schools because mm. prior to the pandemic, our children are, are the ones being punished. Our children are the ones who are being disciplined. And unlike when I was growing up school discipline, now, Often leads to to delinquency charges at least at least down here, and so a lot of a lot of the cases begin with something that took place in the school that when I was younger, would have been dealt with in house at the school, <clears throat> but because there are these school resource officers in the school, they treat everything as a crime, and so mm-hmm. we end up defending things that really were just disciplinary issues. And and uh, that tends to be a big chunk of the problem and a big chunk of why many of them end up this way. That and also what many of you have already said, which is that our people often don't realize we have an enemy. So I deal with parents who go to the juvenile courts to discipline their child and And that begins a very vicious cycle. And those are two of the things that I've seen and in terms of a solution. Unity is it, because as long as our children are in these schools, and as long as we rely on our enemies to to discipline our children, we don't have these problems.
1: Sir, that is so, you're right, because suspensions, you're saying, you know, a lot of times rather than handle them in school, they end up suspending the children, turning it over to the courts. And I often mm-hmm. wondered, well, now what does a child do once you uh, kick them out of school? You know, what, what are you asking for then? So, yes, sir, thank you for that comment, uh, Brother Brother Deshaun. He's an attorney no, out of no, no. Memphis, Tennessee. Yes, sir,
4: go ahead. I just wanted to clarify, no, I don't mean suspensions. I mean the normal fights that would happen in school now go at least down here. often end up going to juvenile court for, as assaults, different little things that children would do go straight from the school will actually bring the charges against the student and and it'll be dealt with in the courts.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. sir, I, and and I, I'm sorry, I, I thought I said that as well, but also right. in addition, the suspension, I, you know, I wasn't clear, but j- the suspension on top of the criminal charge in the courts, it also adds to the child's likelihood of being a failure because schools, you know, a lot of times then what do they do? So it's a two two edge, but you're right. I mean, I know when they threw a spitball, a child threw a spitball back in the early '90s, and and got charged with assault. I was I was through ever since then. So got charged with assault and went to court. So you're so right. But thank you so much, brother Deshaun. Thank you for your call. Thank you. And,
4: and you. Know, Pam, if Pam. I may?
1: Yes, definitely, and then we'll take another call. Yes, go right ahead.
2: I was just going to say the zero tolerance policies criminalize minor infractions in schools, like he was saying, that um, really feed into um, the juvenile justice system. And also this No Child Left Behind Act because um, it really is leaving a lot of our children behind because these schools are – um wanting to get money um for their children, you know being able to pass tests and meet certain uh guidelines, and so they want to get rid of you know some of the children that may have more difficulties in passing um that may have special education needs um that um may you know not allow their scores to be like they want them to be. So this is a tactic too. So if you follow the money, um you can see, you know, what's happening there as well. So like you were saying in terms of really recognizing that some of these policies are intentionally sending these children to these systems, you can see that through the school system based on now how they are handling uh these minor school infractions, making them criminal. So I just wanted to add that.
1: Mm, Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much, Sister Kiana. Okay, I'm going to take, we have a caller, uh, Sister Mama Sonya is on the line. Sister Mama Sonya.
5: Good afternoon. Well, good evening. This has been such a very, very enlightening conversation, and I just want to thank each and every one of you in the law for what you're doing. Uh, and I had another comment, but now I have to jump to something. Uh, first, I want to say, and Sister Pamela, I admire her so much. She's doing such a wonderful job here to represent uh, oh, not only in the courts, but just in the community. The uh, too, one of the biggest problems we have, I'm sure here in every place else, is the presence of police on the campus. We're working mm-hmm. on a uh, – I've been working with some groups that we're trying to get the police removed from the campuses. We do not need armed policemen on these campuses. Uh, uh, At one of the schools, one of the uh, policemen said that when a lot of times cases that they would want him to work on, it's just a matter of classroom management, and he would not act on it, and the teachers would get really, really upset. He said that is not an infraction. That is not an infraction, and why do you want to criminalize these children, like you said, for doing something that's not even criminal? If you had good classroom management, a lot of times it would not would not even as evolved as to what it is. So I think that's a big problem. We've got to get the police, armed police forces, off of our campuses on a daily basis. And then we talked. Then prior to you talked about what's going on in the community. What do we need to go? We do. We need to get back to the village. You said it takes the village to raise the children. Well, we are the village, and these are our children. We've got to get back. We, like Aunt Sadie used to help. If we knew that, 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 that little Korean over there couldn't take care of her children, Aunt Sadie, we, we had what was called, before CPS, we had CA, colored adoption. And in colored adoptions, I would come and take your child and take care of your child until you got ready, and then I'd give your child back after you had a chance. And even if you never got your child back, your child was out in the system, your child was in a home with somebody that loved you and cared and cared in a community. So I think it is. It's uh, And like each of you said, this is not by design. All that's going on, it is, it is well, it is by design. When I say it's not by design, it's not by uh, innocent design. They know exactly what they're doing. So it's up to us as a community to be there for our children, be there for our parents. A lot of times, and sure, There are some instances where children do need to be taken out. We had a beautiful little four-year-old boy who was beaten to death. And if something could have happened prior to that happened to the little child, maybe somebody could have gotten that child, not even in the system. If it wasn't in the system, somebody. And, you know, they said, if you see something, say something. If you know that 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 parent is doing something wrong or something's going on, y'all, it's time for us to step up and do something to help our children. And I just want to say thank you all. This has been a wonderful show. Uh, a lot of people need to hear it, and we need to have those street justice programs again for the kids. Where we get them on Saturday mornings, and like you said, we tell them how to talk, what to say, what to do when you stop by the cops, and just shut up, just be quiet. Mm-hmm. That's it. I say, I say.
1: Hey, thank you so much for calling Ashe. in. Beautiful comments. And as she was saying, just really on on point, everyone's talked about police in schools. And, you know, there was a program today by the American Bar Association, and those police are going to be in schools. I mean, the conversation makes you understand that there will be increased presence of police in these public schools. And this is why it's so important for us who believe in independent education as well, because I, I really believe in the ability for us to to teach our own children and help our own children, and this is another way that we can make our communities decent and safe places to live. Let me ask this. Brother Jack, have you rejoined us on the line? I was just wanting to check. Uh, on on
3: my end, Sister Pamela, okay. I was never disconnected, so I, I don't know okay. what happened tomorrow. Okay.
1: Okay.
4: Yes, okay. yes, yes
1: sir. Thank you. So I'm going to take another caller. Uh we have Twyla. Twyla Lochner is on the line. Welcome to a time for justice, Twyla. Hi,
6: how Sister you? Pamela. How, how are you doing, Sister Pamela?
1: Oh, I'm fine. I am so fine. Thank you so much for calling, Sister Twyla.
6: Well, I'm I saw my Well,
1: wa alaikum sister. Yes, ma'am.
6: Well, <laughs> yeah. For, um, we go ahead. Go
1: ahead. I want to say, and for everybody, both Twila and Sister Mama Sonya are a part of an organization that we have called the Coalition for the Preservation of the Black Family, and um, we we just wanted to give them that um, that recognition for them calling in. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead, Sister Twyla. Well, thank
6: you so very much. We were talking, um, I mean, your show is very powerful, and all of the information that that is being given out right now is very, very important. It's important for the children, the parents, the lawyers, everyone listening. Um, One thing that I like to do is be solution-oriented, and sometimes when we say that the parents aren't educated, we, I don't think that we mean that they don't know how to read and write. We just know that they may not know what the legal terms are, what the education, uh, whatever systems that they're in, what are the proper roles and consequences for that. So every year you should get a handbook from your school, and within that, it should have a discipline policy. A level one, two, three, different things like that. So many times, us as parents, we, it's so much to read. We just sign it and send it on back in. And, you know, one of the things that I, I did early on is I began teaching my children on how to protect themselves even as little bitty kids. So for for something very simple as in going into a, a grocery store, say like a at Walgreens or a CVS and the people ask you, do you want a bag? And the answer is yes. All children, black people, people of color should have a bag. And where does the receipt go? It goes in the bag. You don't need to dig in your pocket to find a receipt to give someone else the opportunity to imply that you are a danger. The other thing is it's very important before even kindergarten to tell people to have your children to say, my mom says I can't answer any questions, I can't sign anything without them present. And then have your child say call my mother or call my father and refuse to answer any questions Until that parent arrives because they really they can't do anything unless they that happens And that's something that parents don't know and that's something that the kids don't know Every year I send a letter to the principals of the schools Saying that my children are not allowed to sign any documents or make any statements Regarding themselves or other situations that do not involve them without my approval and by sending that in they must call me because there are so many people who are in the schools who are very skilled at talking to your children in ways to make them admit to things that they did not do for example um there was one lady who was very skilled and she was the the you know the person who is overall the punishment discipline coordinator and she said to the kid did you hit him? And the little boy said, no. And so she says, well, if I look at the camera, it's not going to show me that you're doing anything wrong. So then the boy says, well, I don't know. But I didn't hit the kid. Well, if you don't know, then are you saying that you're not sure that you didn't hit this kid or not? Are you sure, are you sure that you didn't do something wrong or not? So if I go review this tape, will I see you doing something wrong? to be honest those record those video cameras did not work that was a tactic to get the child to admit and tell anything that they may have done wrong so it's very very important that we teach our children our their rights we teach our children things to protect themselves to make sure they don't sign anything a lot of things with teachers they do have students they want the students to help them to create a you know what should we do if and they want them to create their own rules for the classroom and then everybody sign the rules for the classroom that they've all agreed upon and that is a tactic that teachers are learning you know to to get kids involved in it invested in it to say that they were a part of making the plan but what it really does is just getting our children Very, very used to signing documents, agreeing to terms without parent permission. So those are some of the things that we really, really have to get our children to understand at any age. And if they say nothing, tell them, say nothing until my mom or my father arrives. Whether they think they did something wrong or not, do not explain. And so those are just the things that I wanted to touch on as parents um, because, you know, when we talk about education, a heart specialist may not know what to do if their child gets in trouble at school because they're not an educator, they're not a principal, they're not trained in that situation. So we have people across the board, no matter what their level of education is, not knowing how to react if their child is in trouble. So we need to have something that just is a what to do if this happens. And that's across the board so that all people yes, um, yes, are able to defend their children properly. And that's all yes, I had ma'am. to say, well, Sister uh, Pamela. So thank you so very much for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for calling. And those are some really good points. One of the things that I, I heard her say was about police lying or, or People lying to um, in the in the process of investigating, they're lying to get people to entrap them, to make confessions, and to and their fear, they're causing fear. So I think again, Sister Kiana, what you said about not saying anything at all is so very important. Um, and I wanted to ask the question. Regarding neglect, and I think it's so important, Sister Kiana, in the child welfare arena, neglect is a reason that parents are investigated, and in the black community, they make up most of the reasons why children are removed from homes. Can you explain to the audience a little bit about that neglect standard? Because from my perspective, a lot of times it's about poverty, and this is unfair targeting um, from my perspective, because black people of course legacy of slavery we aren't we we have we live in communities where one uh legal professor said that it's unconstitutional the amount of urban p- poverty uh that we we've inherited as a result of slavery, but the system seems to be using that to target. Our Our youth and our families, so could you talk to us a bit about that, please
2: yes ma'am i and i and I could say that most of the neglect cases that um I personally have encountered um are um had the uh opportunity to work with has been based on a impairment from based on an impairment from the parent. You don't typically have functioning parents um, who neglect their children. So it's a failure to meet some type of responsibility, clothing, shelter, all of that medical needs of a child. Um, and most of the case is because the, the parent is either, you know, has a substance abuse issue, which typically comes from an underlying mental health issue um, or just a undiagnosed mental health issue. Um, And so that's where I have seen, um, you know, the um, agency getting involved in targeting those types of families instead of, you know, identifying resources in the community uh, to help that parent uh, to take care of themselves, to be able to take care of their children. Um, And so I think wraparound services in our community For the family can really eliminate most of these cases uh, because we have uh, the ability to deal with those things um, very simply, I believe, um, by addressing some of the um, main issues that our parents are dealing with that's preventing them to really pay the attention necessary uh, to be able to provide for the basic needs of the child. And so I think if our community sees that as a problem, we will demand that some of these um, services are put in our community so that we can address those uh, issues that are coming up in those types of cases where we don't have to remove our children from those homes because we're taking care of the problem inside the home. And most of the children um, who are in the neglect cases, are really traumatized um, from being around um, other strangers and taken out of their family because our children recognize that something is wrong with my parents, that they need help um, and that, but they are good people. And that's what I'm saying there. You don't have uh, too many parents who are just deciding, no, I'm not going to get up and, you know, take you to the doctor. I'm not going to get up and do this. You have really good parents who have the potential to be really good parents, you know, but they have other impairments that are preventing them from being able to do so. And I I believe that they, the children recognize that. And so when you remove them from their home, they're additionally traumatized by knowing that they have left a home where they do have a parent that loves them. Um, also, that parent is not um, getting the help uh, that he or she needs. Uh, to be able to address it satisfactorily where, you know, they don't even have to worry about the parent because the children do worry about the parent as well um, when they're away. And uh, So I think, you know, getting some of those um, needs met for the parent will eliminate any of these neglect cases that
1: I've seen. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Because like you say, and I, and I think, One of our points here, uh, at least from my perspective, is that we need people to get the information that we see in these courts so they can know what the vulnerabilities are. They can know what the situations are when we're seeing the removals or we're seeing some of these crimes, these petty crimes, these these young men acting out, because Mm -hmm. one thing I found out is that the legal system knows the information they know right. where our people live they they've at some point collected data whether it be in these schools whether it be in these surveys and so it's important then for us to know because this is how we can help make our communities decent and place safe places to live because then we can know what we're seeing and identify it and not just maybe turn the other face and think, oh, yeah, well, the police need to help, you know, or, or, oh, this person is just being trifling. No, maybe they just need some milk or, or, or some service. Right. Because, again, as Sister Keanu is saying, if they're being put in foster care, remind this, 80% of the prison population at some point was in some foster children, right. the homeless communities so this is that pipeline so if we we can get to it and recognize these issues early on and and that's what i'm saying so as we're kind of closing we we still have 15 minutes but i did want to talk more to the attorneys who are in these roles as prevention uh what is it that um how does one bring a lawyer to the best case and i think sister saidia really answered that well so i'll I'll go into uh the next part, which would be, are the young people getting fair treatment in the courts? Are people getting fair treatment in the courts and And we can kind of just go right into this we've seen it these last this last year we've seen the the horrible targeting and the killing and the extrajudicial killing and so you know of course, the answer is no. Uh, this system is 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 made to target, but I, I just kind of want us to be a little as specific as possible some of the negative outcomes in the unfair treatment so we can make sure that our families know how to to avoid it. What about the prosecutors and the police? Um, how is the media influencing any of the the perception I just wanted to um, you know, see if anybody wanted to weigh in on some of those issues that that we've seen. Um, Sister Kiana brought up the adultification of of black youth and and how they're seen as as not being children, but seen as people to I guess murder and get rid of. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we we see that. So,
0: Sister Pam. You know, i like to say what what we see is a coordinated campaign. I think we spoke earlier and we talked about this um, black on black violence and how when we start talking about police brutality, the first thing the media or some somebody want to bring up is, well, what about the black on black violence in the community? And then, you know, we start stuttering because we don't know how to answer that question or answer that. Um, And we have to understand that that again, that was made that way that's propaganda that's black propaganda directed at our community to lessen our community and our ability, our immune system, our ability to fight um for ourselves because if you understand black on black violence um again, it was made that way. when you talk about uh chattel slavery, you talk about the the black codes, you talk about the war on drugs, gentrification, you know the prison the pipe. It was made that way, so we have to let. People understand the media that we see that, that targets our community um, it's, it's doing that for a reason, you know. Um, so you have what you call a symbol with no substance um, when you give us things like uh, the Juneteenth bill and make, it feel, make us feel like we're getting some justice in this system. So it's, nice. as far as the, the education system, you can't treat us well if you can't teach us well, and we know that. So we got to go back to what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad told us, and he told us that we need to separate from this enemy system because there is no freedom, justice, and equality in it. We have to create school systems for ourselves like we do in the Nation of Islam with Muhammad University or the Elevated Places. We have to pool our resources and our economics together together. you know, our unity is more powerful than an atomic bomb. So we have to police our own communities. We have to have that support system for our children so that CPS won't step in. And, and I like to say this, Sister Pam, and, and for the, the listeners, you know, I'm a product of foster care. I really am. Okay. I, I grew up in foster care at the age of 10, and I actually graduated out of the system. And then, okay. you know, as an adult, I adopted uh, four children who were on their way into the foster care system. So it has to take people who've been there and who've been blessed and supported and to reach back and pull up. You know, I heard the sister that was on before your caller and she, you know, just some of the tips that she was given how to handle. So we have to continue to educate, 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 support, and black unity. We, when we were united, you know, when we looked in the 60s, um, black power movement, you know, what we, we didn't find black-on-black violence in our neighborhood. Why? Because we were so busy being united and having self-identifying, you know, uh, uh, identifying with ourselves um, to, to the de- not to the detriment of white supremacy. So we have to get back to, you know, realizing the value of who we are, especially as black people, and being self-sufficient. So we got to unite um, in that aspect.
1: Yes ma'am, beautiful Thank you so much for sharing Uh, Brother Jock, I was wondering If you wanted to weigh in On on that question as well Um, What are you Seeing as a brother I mean you you described that whole I think that was, did you say Rikers Island Being the the venue Because we know with our young brother And I want to call his name Um uh Browder, I think his name was Khalif um, Correct. Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder. Khalif he, Browder. Correct. And, yes, sir. And and you know, what we saw with him was someone who was held and that's another big issue, this lack of bail. So this young man was held in jail for a crime he did not commit. He was held unjustly and while in prison he was treated so tortured. You know, this young man was tortured, deprived of his constitutional rights and his human rights. And so, um, you know, that 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 role that it plays into what our youth have gone through and what they're they're dealing with. Brother Ishmael said on Sunday sometimes that they are heartless. As Sister did described her experience and the blessing that she got with having people that loved her, that supported that had that sense of community, we we got to make sure that more people get that that feeling and experience, too, because it can turn people into, it can just, you know, just destroy people's lives is what we're seeing. So, yes, sir, Brother Duck, I was wondering, did you have anything to add on that point?
3: No, I, I think uh, Sister Kiana really said it best when, she said, you know, we really need to hearken to the voice of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad when he said, we need to do for self. We need to set up our own institutions. We need to set up our own schools. I mean, when we look at, you know, public schools in most of the urban centers in, in America, it's all the same. That's why it's easy to identify that this is intentional. Because in every major city, you see practically the same thing, you know, gentrification is happening in every major city. Um, When you look at the test grades in every major city, when you look at curriculum, it's really identical. And we we can't expect that a young person will sit in school for eight hours out of the day and don't see anything of greatness that's related Mm. to his or her experience, and expect them to be great. That just Mm -hmm. is its almost an impossibility, you know. And and I always reflect back on my own experience. I didn't have a black male teacher um, until I went to Morehouse College. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was literally it blew my mind to see a person that looked like me standing before me and saying, you know what, I, you know, received my master's from Harvard in 1956 or I graduated from Lincoln University in 1970 as a young black male at the time, it removed every and all excuses that I had made up in my mind because it made me think like, wow, this man who looks like me did this in the fifties and sixties. I'm in the 80s. I have no excuse. And sometimes we underestimate the power of imagery that when our yeah. young, and, and, and that's why it's really important for us uh, in whatever profession that we're in, we have to get in the community and show our young brothers and sisters something that sometimes we take for granted that they don't see on a daily basis. You know, they don't the, They don't see brothers and sisters who are achieving on a daily basis. They go to school for eight hours and don't see any of black excellence for eight hours and, you know, nine months out the year. And to me, it's, yeah. it's criminal that you go through a whole, um, you know, K through 12 and mm-hmm. never have a, a person before you of excellence in the classroom. That That's ridiculous. Wow. So we Beautiful. have to change that paradigm.
1: Yes, sir, you're so right. And job training, and not so much job training, but skill training as well for young black males. I know one of the brothers who listens often, he, that's his, his big issue, training these young men how to do welding and to farm and to do other skills. So in the last couple of minutes, I would love for Sister Kiana, Sister Sadia, give us some input as Brother Josh uh Jock did with what what is it that the young sisters are needing? what do they need to hear? what do we as women need to be telling our girls as well uh to empower them yeah I, I guess I'll go i I
2: was getting yes, <laughs> yeah. uh, so she had the opportunity to go but um as far as um I just wanted to say this uh cultural bias permeates uh throughout these systems. Um, and it's implicit bias in decisions and, you know, who gets to be considered for placement, who gets to, you know, get the probation and who has to go to jail. It's all of that, um, based on yeah, yeah. us as a people. And sometimes even people with black faces, you know, um, have the um, mentality where you take off your culture when you become a part of the system. And so we don't even use our common sense and how we kind of operate um, in our culture on a day-to-day basis uh, to manage and address problems. And I think that's a major um, factor as well that has been contributing to the rise in the neglect cases. I think a lot of those cases have also come from the medical community because they want to control not only our minds, but our bodies and the decisions mm-hmm. that we make concerning our bodies. Um, and as a culture, we have, we handle things totally different, um, than other people. Um, and we have value in the way that we handle things. And I think we have to put that on, at the forefront. And that just goes into what we should do with our young girls is to, Really teach them of their value, because sometimes okay. we kind of devalue what it is that we bring to the table. Uh, as a people, um, we're different than any other people, um, and we have value in being who we are. And I think that important for um, me and my work with Queendom Come is working with young girls to teach them their value and their connection to the ultimate source, which is God Himself. You know. And so I yes, think um, that kind of getting a direction and a foundation and a sense of self, you can go out really and address the world and, you know, solve your own problems um, at that point. And I think that makes us different um, than the rest. And we teach not only about leadership, but by being uh, women with character, uh, integrity, um, virtue, and you know, instilling those things in our girls um, will help change our entire community, I believe, because as we say, a nation can rise no higher than its woman. And that's not just a cliche. That's real talk because we're the first teachers. We're the first doctors. We're the first in everything uh, in building the nation.
0: Sister Kiana yes. said it so eloquently, Sister, Sister Pam. Sister Kiana and I were both co-founders of Kingdom Come Incorporated, um nonprofit organization for the elevation of um girls and women black girls and women and so she said it all
1: you know just okay all so thing I can the say audience. is mm-hmm. yes ma'am we're down to like 60 seconds so tell the audience how they can get in touch with you sister sister Sadia yes ma'am so i'm
0: out of Houston Texas i can be reached at 832-623-2323 you can find me on social media Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, Twitter, Sadia Evangelista Kareem.
1: Okay. And again, thank you all. um, And that's for the Queendom Come as well contact. And I would like to thank you all for listening to A Time for Justice. Thank the guests for coming on. I would like to thank. Sister Minister Ava Muhammad and the Elevated Places yeah. team, that's Sister Rona, Brother Terrence, yeah. Sister Donna. And I would also like to thank the listeners for listening to our show. You can listen to Sister Ava Muhammad's show, Ask Dr. Ava, on Thursday at 7 p.m. And we ask you to tune in again next week at 7 o'clock for our Time to Justice. Assalamu
4: um,